We're going to finish off this series in Titus. And I, I, I just want you to know from a personal standpoint, you might have gotten nothing at all from this study, but it has rocked my world and it's helped me to reevaluate why I do what I do, why God has called me to do what I do, why we're here as a church. It's caused me to reevaluate a lot of things in my life, in my ministry, and in this church. And I hope it's done the same for you. Those of you who've been faithful to be here and hear these messages, I hope that you've taken them home and meditated on what we talked about, thought about it, prayed about it. Um, we finished this series up today, and I'm almost kind of sad. We're do, you know, we got to fin- I, I guess you have to finish at some point. And I'm kind of sad that this is the last time we get to look directly into, into the book of Titus as we have been doing. But this is an important, I think, way to finish. I, th- I don't know how you are when you come to the end of many of these letters that Paul wrote. He kind of gets into his final greetings and, and, and things, and he runs through a list of people. And typically, you kind of, if you're like me, you kind of jump over those things thinking they can't be all that important to me. Well, the Lord kicked my rear end on that this week. <laughs> so um, he, he helped me to see that there these last few verses, as Paul wraps things up, are filled with meaning and filled with instruction, if we'll see it for what it is. There's not a word in the Bible that's there by mistake. It is the Word of God. From the beginning, Genesis 1, to the end in Revelation, it is all the Word of God, and every word matters, and we ought to study and carefully carefully examine that Word to gain instruction from it, because we get life from it when we do. So, I don't want us to dismiss these last few verses thinking, well, we've gone through the bulk of the book, now we're done. No, we're not. Here we go. There's one more thing that we have to look at as we finish it up. If we traveled back to that first century, if we had a time machine and were able to, able to travel back to the early first century, we would see that Rome rules the world with an iron fist. And if you asked for a list of major religions... Christianity would be nowhere on that list. The average man on the street would have no idea who Jesus Christ is, and they would have no idea what Jesus Christ had come to do or had already done. They would never have heard the gospel. They would never have heard this phrase that we take for granted, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We take that for granted, but those people back in the first century had never heard those words before. They had no idea that God loved them, that God wanted to reconcile them back to himself. They had no idea what Christ Jesus had done for them on the cross, just outside the walls of that city in Jerusalem. But then, but then, an obscure little Jewish man named Paul steps out into history. You know the story. While on the road to Damascus to persecute a tiny band of those earlier believers in Christ, Paul famously met the risen Christ for himself. And in that encounter, Christ commissioned Paul to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. And again, we, we know how the story progressed from there. And we see the rapid expanse expansion of the kingdom of God, we see the effect that Paul had on the world and the gospel had through Paul as he took that message to all the known world at the time, but we take that for granted, I'm afraid. We don't think about it carefully. We don't 
understand the sacrifice that it took. Because as Paul received that commission from the Lord to go and take this gospel to all the nations, I mean, it sounds great, but how was he supposed to do that? How was he supposed to do that in the context of the first century? There were no mass media outlets. There, was, there were no TV stations or radio stations. There were no printing presses to produce books and magazines and teaching materials. There was no internet. Paul had to walk everywhere or take a ship because there were no transit systems. There were no planes, trains, or automobiles. All of you that thought of the movie, give me an amen. Thank you. Because I did too when I wrote the line. I thought, ah, that's the title of the movie. And, and, and how was he going to finance it? Paul wasn't a trust fund baby with millions of dollars at his disposal to use to cover the expenses of getting this gospel around the world? Who was going to help him pay for this enormous cost of taking the gospel to the nations? But you and I, we, we know how the story turns out. We know that in spite of all those limitations, that Paul took the gospel message to the world until finally the critics said of him, he has turned the world upside down with his teaching. Now, I want us for just a minute to bring this up to date a little bit and personalize it. How do we reach Calera and central Alabama with the good news of Jesus Christ? That's been given to us as the followers of Christ. That's the commission, right? To take His gospel to our neighborhoods, to the world around us. How are we supposed to do that? We've got our own set of limitations to work with, don't we? We've got our own set of limitations to work with. How do we let the world today know that Christ Jesus came to save them? How do we reach the world with the gospel? You know what? We're going to do it the same way Paul did. Now, let, let, let me step back just a little bit. This isn't in my notes, but I was thinking about it this morning. You're thinking, but that's Paul. I'm no Paul. You're right. But the same spirit that indwelled Paul's heart and empowered his life is the same spirit indwelling your heart and empowering your life. Jesus Christ is the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So don't go around thinking, well, I'm no Paul. That's right. And Paul was no you. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for all. You've got to understand this. The same Jesus that called Paul to transform his world is the same Jesus calling people like you and me to transform our world. And he will work through us as we lay our lives before him as living sacrifices and commit ourselves to this mission. So how in the world are we supposed to reach Calera, Alabama? How are we supposed to reach our world today? We're going to do it the same way Paul did. Listen, and this is how Paul did it. Paul reached his world through a team of believers committed to ministry. Paul reached his world through a team of believers committed to bringing glory to God through their good works. That's what this entire book of Titus is all about. Creating a church culture that creates disciples who are devoted to doing good works, works that bring glory and honor to God. How are we going to do what, Paul, what God has called us to do, reach our world with the gospel? We're going to do it by raising up a team of committed people who make that their focus who do good for the glory of God. As a church, this is our mission. 
This is what Titus has told us. That we will reach our world by producing disciples committed to ministry, devoted to doing good, letting their light shine so that the world sees their good works and glorify, glorify God in heaven. So today we're going to finish up this series on the book of Titus. Man, it's rocked my world. I hope it's done the same for you. It's a book that lays out God's purpose and plan for a local church like ours. We want to be a church that's like, as Jesus described it, a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. A church that brings glory to God. And to be that kind of church means that we need to do it God's way. God's way. What is God's way? Well, as Titus has described it for us, God's way looks like this. We have to value and practice these things. Biblical preaching. Godly leadership. Practical comprehensive teaching. Trusting and relying in God's grace that trains us in the ways of God. Always ready to do good through our lives for the glory of God. Last week we talked about maintaining our focus on the mission, not being distracted with disagreements, but remaining focused on what God has called us to do. Well today there's one more value, one more practice I want to put on the table to tell you that we've got to do this if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be. We've got to see the importance of everyone being engaged in the mission. Everyone engaged. Would you say that with me? Everyone engaged. Everyone engaged. Everyone participating and playing their part to bring glory to God. It works best when everybody's all in. Thank you, whoever said that. Titus, and here we get to, here we get to the passage of Scripture we're going to talk about today. Titus 3, 12 through 15. Paul is closing out his letter to Titus with this list of instructions about how to put these churches in order, what these churches should be doing and valuing in order to be the churches that God called them to be. And he says this, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, I pray in this brief and simple message that you will challenge every heart in this room and everyone who hears the, the podcast, everyone who reads this message or hears this message in any way, I pray, Father, that You would challenge our hearts. I pray that You would help us to make a choice to engage ourselves in this mission. Help us to see that we have been saved by Your grace to make a difference in this world. Help us to see that Your Spirit indwells us and empowers us not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the world around us. Help us to see that our life is not really about us, it's about You. It's about what You want to do, not only in us, Lord, but through us. Help us to see what our purpose really is, what the mission really is, and help us to fully engage in this mission, and in doing so, find the fulfillment and the contentment 
and the significance and the sense of purpose that we can't seem to find on our own. Challenge our hearts to get off the bench and into the game. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Look, Paul wasn't a one-man team. We tend to read the book of Acts, and we look at Paul as being some kind of super saint. He was no such thing. He was a man just like you and me, with struggles. But he was a man that dived headlong into the purpose and mission of God, and he accomplished great things for God. And there is nothing that Paul did that we cannot do if we will do the same. Paul wasn't a one-man team. Paul always worked with and through a team of fellow believers who themselves were committed to ministry. And in this, these final few verses in Titus, we get a partial roster of who was on Paul's team. And so I want to run through this list of people, if you will. Now, there are people in this room who, if I were to ask you, who will be playing on Alabama's first string in the fall, you could run through a list of names and tell me their sizes, their dimensions, their, their achievements already, what year in school they are, I'm telling you, that's not nearly as important as knowing this roster on this team. Just saying. I wish we spent half as much time in the Bible as we do on the internet figuring out how is Bama going to beat Clemson next year. Anyway, maybe that's just me. Who was on Paul's team? First, we have Titus. We know the letter was written to Titus. Paul is writing to Titus here. We already know a little bit about Titus. I'd, I'd encourage you to go and get your, um, get your concordance out and look up more verses about Titus and all that he did and all that he, uh, he went on to do. Titus was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. He didn't grow up with the Old Testament stories of God and God's deliverance and the Exodus. And all. Paul, Paul was probably led to the Lord and discipled through uh, Titus probably came to know the Lord and was discipled through Paul himself. We know here that Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete, which was a really tough assignment. But Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete to put the churches there in proper order. We've just spent the last several weeks talking about that. Now, I'll tell you, Paul must have trusted Titus an awful lot because Crete was probably the most difficult assignment he could give to one of his disciples. Titus was a strong believer, obviously. He was a tough man. He would have to be to deal with some of the issues he had to deal with on the island of Crete. And he was competent as a leader. And we know later that Paul sent Titus on into the Balkan areas, Croatia. If you've ever, and I have, I've been to Croatia, a beautiful area, but man, it is rugged. And the people there are tough. Paul sent Titus on to Dalmatia, which is in the, in, the, uh, in the Balkan region, later on in his ministry. So I'm telling you, Titus was a special breed of man. A special breed of man. And then we have Artemis on this team. Artemis, now this is the only time in the Bible that this man Artemis is even mentioned. His name gives us the idea that he was also a Gentile without a Jewish background. And we know that Artemis must have been considered a faithful man, a competent man, a, a mature man of God, because Paul considered him to be a worthy replacement for Titus as a leader among the churches in Crete, because he was sending Artemis there. It just makes me wonder, as I read about men like Artemis, how many other men like Artemis, faithful, competent, mature men of God, how many other 
men like Artemis were there on Paul's team, we'll probably never know. Because many of their names are never mentioned. Then we have Tychicus. Tychicus is mentioned at least four times in the New Testament. And in Colossians 4.17, Paul calls Tychicus, don't, don't you wish the Lord would say this about you? Our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. Man, that's a, that's a ringing endorsement, isn't it? For a man. Now, Tychicus was a Gentile also, a non-Jew, who was with Paul, the scripture tells us, during Paul's first imprisonment. Tychicus stuck it out with Paul in the hard times. He didn't cut and run. He stayed with Paul during that first imprisonment, and then Paul later entrusted to, to Tychicus letters that Tychicus took to the Ephesian and the Colossian churches. The fact is, we read the letter to Ephesus and we read the letter to Colossians in our New Testaments because a man like Tychicus was faithful to do what he had been assigned to do, to take those letters to the churches that they were intended for. Tychicus goes on later, the scripture tells us, to replace Timothy, a, another member of Paul's team that we know quite a bit about. Tychicus replaces Timothy as the pastor in Ephesus. I got to tell you, Tychicus was one of, one of the most valuable members on Paul's team. Say his name. It's just, his name's just fun to say. Tychicus. Just say it. Tychicus. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Am I, John? No. Tell me, John. Is it Tychicus? Tychicus. So all this time I've been pronouncing his name wrong. When I get to heaven, I'm going to apologize to him. Is that, is that what throws me? Thank God for scholars. Thank you, John. Tuchicus. Tuch say, say it correctly with me. Tuchicus. Not even close. Say it. Tuchicus. Tuchicus. Oh, that was good. Now you're officially a Greek scholar. Yeah, okay. All right, and then we go on and we see Zenus the lawyer. Zenus the lawyer. Wow, who is this guy? This is the only time Zenus is mentioned. Now, his name suggests that he might have been a Gentile lawyer, but the fact that Paul asked Titus to help supply his needs gives us a hint that maybe Zenos was actually a Jewish expert in the Mosaic law, in the law of Moses. Not a Gentile, but a Jew. We're not really sure. His background's a little sketchy to us. But that doesn't really matter because in my mind, this man, Zenos the lawyer, sets for me an example. This man gave up his career to serve the Lord in ministry. Gave it, walked away from it. Whether he was a Gentile or a Jew, he gave up his law career in order to, to be on Paul's team to bring glory and honor to God. Apollos. That's an interesting man. Apollos. We learn a lot about him in Acts chapter 18, if you get a chance to go there later today. Apollos was a Jew who uh, was raised in the North African city of Alexandria, a place of great learning. There was a huge library there. And Acts 18 tells us that Apollos was an eloquent speaker, and he was competent in Scripture. And I love this. It says that he was fervent in spirit. He came to Ephesus, where Paul had some other teammates, Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos began to 
what he believed to be true about the scripture. And Priscilla and Aquila took him aside, it says, and trained him more perfectly, more accurately in the word of God. So you had this great man, this charismatic man who could light it up when he preached, who knew the scriptures inside and out, but he had an incomplete understanding of the scripture. And you have this little husband-wife team who had been discipled by Paul who come up to him one time, at, some, at some point after a service and say, Apollos, look, you know a lot, but there's a little bit we want to fine-tune here. We need to tweak some of this because you're not quite getting it right. Now, most of us would say, hey, I'm the preacher, you sit down, you listen to me, but that's not the way Apollos handled it at all. Instead, Apollos humbly accepted their correction, and he learned more accurately what the Scripture had to say about Jesus and redemption and salvation and the working of the Holy Spirit. Look, some people think he even went on to write the book of Hebrews. We're not sure if Paul or Apollos wrote it, but some people claim Apollos wrote the book of, of Hebrews, but that's not what's important to me. What's important to me is the fact that this man who, was, who had tremendous charisma, who was incredibly gifted, was humble enough to take correction. God, make me such a man. He later had a powerful ministry in Corinth. And then we get on to a more generic listing. We've had specific individuals named, but also serving on Paul's team was a group that Paul referred to as our people. Our people. These were the Christians in Crete. These were the average Joes worshiping the Lord in these local churches on the island of Crete. And here's what I want you to see about this group of people. Every believer in Crete was expected to become part of the team. Every believer in Crete was expected to become part of the team. That's been the message in the book of Titus all along. Teach our people to be devoted to good works. This is the expectation placed on the disciples who follow Christ. All the Christians in Crete, young and old, rich and poor, new in their faith or experienced in their faith, male or female, in a recovery community, outside the recovery community, wherever they came from, they were expected to fully engage in the work of the ministry so that God might be glorified. And then there's another group of people listed, the final group that I want to point out to you. Paul writes about those who are all with me, all with me. We have no idea where Paul was when he wrote this little book of Titus and put it in Zenos hands and said, take this to him in Crete. We have no idea where Paul was. But wherever he was, search the record for yourself. Wherever Paul was, Paul had other people who were there with him. Paul didn't hold up by himself ever. Ever. Paul always served the Lord in the context of a team. 
Paul always served the Lord in the context of a church. In a community of like-minded believers. And you can see, you can see from this team, of Ross, this, this, this team roster that Paul didn't serve the Lord alone. He was no one-man team. He had a team of believers around him who, just like him, were committed to ministry, committed to bringing glory to God through their good works. And every minister on this team, every servant on this team, every member on this team was gifted in some way to serve. And each one of them had an important role to play. They may have come from different backgrounds. They may have had different levels of experience and different levels of training. But nobody, nobody was expected to be a bench warmer. They weren't permitted to be bench warmers. They were expected to become members of the team. They in the game. And that's the way it's got to be here at CLF if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be. Now you're thinking, oh man, I knew he was working toward this. I knew we were going to have lists in the back where I've got to sign up to do something. No, I don't. I don't, I don't want to play any emotional games with you. I just want to tell you the truth. And then my conscience is cleared and you do what you want. Got it? I'm just kind of laying it out here. There's not a, if there is a list back there. No, there are, there are lists for people who want to go to one another groups, right? That's the only list back there, right? So I just lied to these people. Okay. <laughs> no. I just want somehow to get it across to you that you can't be passive in this thing. You can't sit there on your hands. You can't do nothing with what God has done for you. You've got to engage in the game. You've got to get involved. You've got to participate in some way, to some degree, using the experience you have or the, even with the lack of experience you have. You can't keep making excuses. American ch the churches are filled with people that keep making excuses. And that's why America's going to hell today. You have been created, set apart by God, saved by His grace to become engaged in his mission to, re to reach this world with his gospel. You have been created to do good works. Devote your life to it. Fully engage in it. And then you'll see what God can really do through a people yielded to him, like you did in that first century. All right, let me get back to my notes here. So this isn't about guilt. I don't want you to think of that way. I just simply want to lay out to you what the scripture has to say about everyone being engaged in this mission to bring glory to God through our good works. Nobody riding the bench. Please, no excuses. Nobody riding the bench. No one being unfruitful. Each of us using our gifts, playing our part, discharging our responsibilities, not for the sake of this church, but for the glory of God. For the glory of God. This is our mission as a church to create disciples devoted to doing works that glorify God. I really don't care about the reputation of this church. I really don't care about my reputation. The only reputation I'm concerned about is the reputation of my Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's all I care about. I am tired of people self-identifying as Christians but living like heathens during the week. 
God, save us from the hypocrisy of that. Let's live up to what we have been given in Christ Jesus. And let's see, I'm, I'm on, a, on a rant. Here we go. Let me just lay out for you a partial list, and you could go on and on searching the New Testament, and you'll find scripture after scripture after scripture, just like these that I'm about to read to you. But here, I think, are seven or eight verses that hammer home this truth that we have been saved to do good works. We have been saved to do good works. We're not saved by our works. We are saved to do good works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we are saved for a reason, and that reason is to devote our lives to living for the glory of God and doing good in His name. Here's just a partial list. Matthew 5.16, Jesus Himself is speaking. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, say it with me, good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, say it with me, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 15.58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the, say it with me, work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in, say it with me, doing good. 2 Timothy 2.21 Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every, say it with me, good work. Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and, say it with me, good works. James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my. Mic drop. Turn it off first, turn it off first. Somehow, somehow, we've got it in our mind that salvation is just a personal experience. Get that out of your heads. It's not about you, never has been. It's about Him. It's about Him. It's about His glory. Not about you, it's about Him. He has saved you. Saved you for His purposes. You will never feel significant. You will never feel feel content. You will never feel like your life is meaningful until you fully engage in this mission to live your life for the glory of God. You're gonna, if you don't, you'll spend your life chasing everything else the world chases, and it's miserable. It's miserable. A lot of people in this room know all about that. If you will spend your life fully engaged in the mission of bringing God glory through your good works, suddenly... What you do has meaning and purpose. It's sweet. Even the tough stuff you go through, it's like, that's all right. God's going to use it 
for my good and His glory. His glory. Look, the message in the New Testament is absolutely clear. And I would be happy to sit down with anybody when this is over. Again, we're not saved by our good works. We cannot earn salvation. Christ has done for us everything we need to be brought into the kingdom, the family of God. But we have been saved to do good works, to be engaged in this mission, to be fully devoted to living a life that brings glory to God. Every Christian is saved to serve Christ Jesus by doing good. Every one of us. Not just me. Not just those with pastor in front of their name. Not just those who have, who have been appointed elders. Everyone in this room, if you have been saved by the grace of God, you have been saved to devote your life to good works that bring glory to God. Good works should simply be the overflow of your walk with Christ. If your cup is filled to the brim with Christ, you won't be able to carry it without spilling it on somebody else. And that's all ministry and good works really are. It's good works. I want you to think about good works this way. They are simply the grace and truth of Christ spilling out of your life onto others. It's just the grace and truth of Christ being spilled out of your life onto somebody else. That's all good works are. When you speak an encouraging word, that's a good work that spills out of you the grace and truth that Christ has given you. When you hug a neck, when you pray with someone who's discouraged, when you put an, a, a gift in the offering plate, that's all you're doing. You're allowing the grace and truth of Christ to spill out of your life onto somebody else. Now, good works may take different forms. It may take on a structured form such as hosting a one-another group or teaching an Acts kids class or serving as a greeter on Sunday mornings or being part of a visitation team. So good works may be structured, but so many good works have no structure to them at all. They are spontaneous in the moment as an expression of gratitude to the Lord at the, at, at the nudge uh, given to you by the Holy Spirit. So yes, good works may be structured in that sense. But just for, just, just for a moment, what about, what about some of these unstructured good works that we're called to do? It may mean that you invite a new family out for lunch after service. Or it may mean that you meet up with someone who's going through a difficult time to share a cup of coffee and a word of encouragement with them. It might be as simple as sitting down and filling out a little greeting card, a little note, and, and sending it to someone that you know is... I'm convicted. I'm convicted right now. Sarah Rios, I'm going to point her out. I hate to do this, Sarah, I'm, I'm, but I'm going to do it because there's a point to it. Sarah just suffered the loss of her husband, Jerry, a couple of months ago. Yesterday was his birthday. And I should have remembered that, and I didn't. Two days. Two. Yesterday was your anniversary. The day before was, your, was his birthday. Today is, I'm sorry, I'll get it right. Two days ago were your anniversary. Today is his birthday. Those first anniversaries after the passing of someone you love are tough. I hope we love on her before she gets out of this room today. I'm sorry I forgot. I, I, no, I'm sorry I forgot. I know, I know you're not holding that against me. I'm just saying I wish to goodness. Because we love you. 
look. Boy, that was spontaneous. I hope I didn't do any harm. Okay, thank you. For a purpose. A, a, a spontaneous good work might be just praying with a coworker when they come to you saying, I, I'm really struggling. The other day, one of the students at Kingwood was telling me they were, weren't feeling well. And I walked away from them, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, why did you just walk away? You said you'd pray for them. Why didn't you stop and pray for them then? So the next time I crossed paths with, paths with them, I looked at them. I said, hey, man, can I pray for you right now? Unfortunately, they said yes. So anyway, uh, what I'm saying is we miss opportunities to do good, to let the grace and truth of, of Christ spill out of our lives onto other people. We, you know what I'm talking about. You have those opportunities and you miss them. I hate that. I don't want to miss another opportunity. I want the Lord to be glorified in my life. And I'm encouraging you to do the same. Listen, there's no such thing as a bench warmer believer. No such thing. If you're saved, you're called to be an active player on God's teams. And that's the point of this entire message. That's how Paul reached his world. That's how he was able to turn that world upside down. He had a team committed to bringing God glory through their good works. And if we're going to be a church that's like a city set on a hill, we've got to see ourselves as that kind of team. Everybody engaged. Nobody sitting on the bench, but everybody fully participating living their lives for the glory of God, bringing God glory through the good works that they do. My question for you, and this is all, I'm just, let me bring it to a close. We're going to share communion. Praise band, would you come back up? Here it is. Are you on the team? Are you on the team? If you can't get on the team here, find another church where you can get on the team. Don't sit on your hands. Don't be a bench warmer. You're never going to be happy until you fully engage in the mission. If you can't be happy here, please, I will help you find another I just want, I want you to serve Jesus, man. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to live your life on purpose, bringing glory and honor to God. I don't want to see another Christian drift through life, waste another day. Don't want to see it. How it must break the heart of God, that he would send his only son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and we say, we, we say a little prayer, get up, and walk out the door, never to mention it again to anybody or do anything with it. God save us from that kind of hypocrisy. Fully engaged. Are you on the team? To be on the team means this, that you have accepted Christ as your Savior, that you have turned from your sin and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. To get on the team means that you have not trusted your works to save you. You have trusted Christ. But you know that you have been saved to do good works in the name of Christ. To be on the team, you've got to first acknowledge you need a Savior. And that's my question. If you're on the team, have you done that? That's the way you get on the team. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? I'm asking for real. Have you really trusted Christ as your Savior? Honest question. Are you in church this morning thinking somehow I'm going to earn God's favor by being here? If you've got that thought in your mind, get it out of your mind. 
God can't love you one bit more or one bit less than he already does. He loved you at your worst. He's going to love you at your... That has nothing to do with it. You cannot buy God's favor. Have you trusted Christ? Have you turned from your old sinful lifestyle and turned in faith to Christ? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God into the family of God?